Hi, welcome to Mind the Disruption. I'm Bernice Yenfel. I'm a PhD student and public health practitioner working to move knowledge into action for better health for everyone. On this podcast, I chat with community organizers, public health professionals, academics, and more who have a key thing in common, they're disruptors. They're people who refuse to accept things as they are, passionate about health for all and are pursuing it with the tenacity, a courage, and a deep conviction that a better world is possible. In season one, we're talking about creative discontent, what it means to look around us, see something that needs to be changed, something that is unfair and just, and then taking bold action despite the resistance we might face. In each episode, we hear from a disruptor who has done just that in different areas. Work, food, whiteness, migration, and much more. And we hear their personal journeys. Then we dive into a reflective conversation about what all this means for public health. Wherever we find ourselves, in research, policy, or practice, how do we break from the status quo and move forward with boldness? This podcast is made and brought to you by the National Collaborating Center for Determinants of Health. We support the public health field to move knowledge into action to reduce health inequities in Canada. We're hosted by St. Francis Xavier University. We're funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And we are one of six national collaborating centers for public health working across the country. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of our funder or host. We are located in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. It doesn't mean that we have to abandon who we are so we can fit into these mainstream, particularly white spaces that were not designed for us. And we don't have to leave behind our cultural identity, our religion, our faith, our practices, our, you know, who we are as people as we make it in these spaces. And these spaces, even though they were not designed for us, they're here for us to claim them. That was today's Disruptor. Samia Abdi. Samia is so multifaceted. She's been a senior program specialist at Public Health Ontario since 2015. In this role, she's trained thousands of public health practitioners across Ontario on health equity and racial health equity. She's a mother. She's on the board of the Black Health Alliance. She has been doing community activism since the age of 17. And she's a Black, visible Muslim woman who grew up in Scarborough, an under-resourced part of Toronto. She's learned how all these parts of her identity and her strong ties to her communities contribute to her public health expertise. And Samia is also a disruptor. She is kind, funny, and relentless in her pursuit of health equity and racial justice. I also speak with health equity champion and friend Heather Loco. Heather is a chief nursing officer at the Middlesex London Health Unit in Southern Ontario, where she has worked for 25 years. Unlike many other provinces in Canada, in Ontario, many public health services and programs are developed and provided at the local level through over 30 public health units across the province. 
Heather works at one of these public health units, and Samia works provincially, supporting these health units, the government, and other health organizations by providing public health advice and evidence and capacity building focused on health equity and racial justice. With these two seasoned public health professionals, we explore how do we transform public health programs, organizations, and systems from within to support more equitable communities and societies? And how do we cultivate creative discontent in ourselves and others so that we can challenge a status quo that continues to do incredible harm and recognize the power that each of us has to do something different? Given Samia's values, her commitment to social justice, and grounding in her communities, it's not surprising she became a leader in the public health field. I wanted to know where this all started for her. You are a leader in so many different areas of your life, in uh, your religious community, and in public health. How did you first become a leader? Is there a moment that stands out to you where you feel like you really stepped into that leadership role? I think it's just honestly uh, always having, based on my f- faith teachings uh, um, or my, you know, Islamic teaching, uh, is that um, a, a leader of people is their servant. So this idea of the servant leader and um, being able to volunteer um, since I was 16, 17 in, at mosque, at community organizations, uh, working with young people and mentoring young people who were um, finishing high school and understanding that university and professional the world is not a far-reached uh, dream for us. Often, um, people who look like me, young black people, people, Muslim people, people from highly racialized and poorer communities, uh, if, if we can say that, often feel that uh, these high towers and university uh, buildings are a no-go zone for us. So mm. um, creating opportunities to understand that also we don't have to pick one or another uh, for us to be able to be really grounded in our communities. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to abandon who we are so we can fit into these um, mainstream, particularly white spaces that were not designed for us. And we don't have to leave behind our culture, our identity, our religion, our faith, our practices, our, you know, who we are as people as we make it in these spaces. And these spaces, even though they were not designed for us, they're here for us to claim them. Who inspired you to lead when you were growing up? So it was just honest, like just some people giving me opportunities to teach and to talk to young people and also knowing that I was always someone who's grounded in faith. So just knowing that we are responsible to do our best regardless of where we are at and with whatever little we have or how much we have. And, um, you know, so my parents, for example, always knowing that even though they might not have had a lot of the similar experiences that I have or the opportunities I have, always putting their best foot forward and always helping others and always supporting others. Uh, so both my, my mom and my dad, um, who've been really solid in terms of also never expecting anything less from us. I can relate, right? It's, it's oftentimes that immigrant experience of you come here and then you have to work, you know, twice as hard to make sure that you're putting yourself in a position that not only makes your parents proud, but makes yourself proud and you're you're giving back to your community. So I can absolutely Yeah, and, and that also that this, whatever success, both your successes and your failure are not your own. They are, um, you know, the, I guess the benefit of being part of a community is that, y- you know, 
a lot of people are invested in your success and a lot of people are rooting for you. So you also put, carry that responsibility and the, carry the need to, to give back when, once you're able to make it through and just show someone else the path. As a teenager with a deep sense of responsibility to her community, Samia went on to claim spaces not designed for her. She started by completing undergraduate studies in public health. After graduating, she took some important detours. So before I was doing public health, I was doing community health for a um, number of years. Can you tell me a little bit about that community health work that you were doing? Yeah, so actually, and I contribute a lot of my consciousness around anti-racism work and, and, and um, racial inequities to the, those early experiences post-graduation. Mm. Um, so one of my first um, jobs that I had was with an organization called Across Boundaries, um, which to, over 20 years ago was the only uh, mental health organization that only served racialized communities, so did not hire non-racialized folks, did not serve non racialized folks mm. uh, operated uh, from the principles of anti-racism uh, in practice because we have a lot of organizations that um, maybe say the language or uh, right. you know put it in their in their um, vision mission statements but that is not necessarily reflected in terms of how they operate who they hire who they serve so Early on in my career, having a really wonderful example of what an anti-racism practice in an organization that was built for racialized people looks like and how does it change the lives of people who have been um, impacted by white supremacy and, and systemic racism uh, in, in every aspect of their life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you did your undergrad in public health, and then you took a little bit of a detour, but it sounds like it was very fruitful for you in terms of kind of raising your consciousness about systemic oppression and how it impacts people's lives. And then eventually you decided to do a master's in public health. Is that correct? I did, yes. Okay. Um, so after doing that work and working with, um, you know, the the criminal justice system and understanding also how it's really a at the policy level that change needs to happen, uh, feeling really um, disempowered a lot of the time in terms of not being able to impact the young peoples uh, that I worked with and that were really being impacted by police violence um, and, uh, you know, the really horrific ways that social workers sometimes um, tend to view our young people and treat them. So just seeing that made me feel like I needed to um, probably step up and do a master's and maybe try to see if I can do some work that is more at policy level or be able to do the work at the systems level as opposed to at an individual level, which was what I was doing. After working in community health and with youth in the criminal justice system for several years, Samia wanted to confront the racism and inequities that she was seeing every day that were impacting her community and the young people she is working with. So she got her Master of Public Health. And just a couple years after graduating, in 2015, Samia started working at Public Health Ontario, PHO, as a health promotion consultant. Samia was working at the systems level like she wanted able to work with folks and support good public health practice across the province. But anti-racism and health equity weren't a central part of her role yet. Samia told me what her job was like when she first started at PHO and what it took to put health equity and racial justice at the core of her professional role. 
I started as a consultant doing um, strategic planning and uh, program evaluation, uh, particularly working in a unit that was focused on capacity building, so training uh, public health professionals across the province on how they can plan their programs as well as evaluate it in a way that made sense and, you know, what's their theory of change and what their logic models were and supporting them in creating indicators and all of that good work Mm. and creating scorecards. Um, So that was like the focus on my work uh, in the first three years or so. And as I was having conversations with other professionals across the province, I understood that there was a real opportunity as we were uh, supporting folks in terms of their planning. Was there a way that they could think about, uh, you know, planning from an equity perspective in advance of their programs being uh, implemented and delivered and uh, you know, are there other tools in the toolbox that we can uh, put around uh, addressing health inequities in general? And with time, um, racism was um, acknowledged as a social determinant of health. And even that, then it was not as clearly defined uh, as it is today, which we know that it's not only a social determinant of health, but it's actually a driving force for all determinants right. of health. What do you recall about that time when racism began to be discussed in your organization? What did that look like? What did it sound like? How was it first acknowledged? Well, I think one of the um, stories that I, I, I recall very clearly, one of the moments it was for the Canadian Public Health Association Conference and where we had put through an abstract for a workshop to address health inequities in the Canadian system, particularly in public health. And a conversation saying that we could not use the language of uh, historically oppressed populations referring to black and indigenous people. Mm. And we were being very generous because we said historically and we were not talking even about current oppressions. Right. Uh, But the strength of coming back around the use of oppression, as well as the clear division between social justice work and health equity uh, and, and creating this imaginary divide that somehow we're able to talk about equity without justice. And so when you first put the word oppression in the abstract, what was the reaction? What was said? What was some of that pushback? Uh, some of the pushback was, first of all, that we don't do advocacy in, in, in public health and our role is, um, you know, to do to to use the scientific data and, and scientific evidence and that like the advocacy a- activism work is not a public health role, even though it is. <laughs> I think one of the, the harshest words was like this was going to be an embarrassment to the field if we started using this kind of language that is charged, that is emotional. (laughs) So you can say the word poverty. Yes. And that's not considered advocacy or activism. But once you say oppression... Yes. It's and when charged. it comes and it depends like oppression particularly for black people. Uh, so it's it's tying it to the race. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even we didn't even have the courage to bring up racism yet. So um, even in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, when myself and some colleagues were doing um, the briefing note around to back up the the need for race-based data, uh, what we've started coming across was that most people were very comfortable to talk about race, but not racism. Hmm. So they would name race as a differential factor. They would talk about the differential experiences of black people. And this is across North America. Uh, So even the U.S.-based public health literature 
was not talking that much about racism. So this is the beginning of 2020, uh, but really comfortable to to name black people as, uh, you know, as if we're biologically more vulnerable. So talk about right. the, the racial differential health outcomes, but without talking about uh, racism as an underlying factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you start to focus on racism and anti-racism in your work? What's the story behind that? So I started to do health equity in general. And even that was like a, a bit of a, a, a departure from my initial role. And because I did have a champion um, in my organization and few champions outside of the organization um, that saw value in the work that I was putting forth. Um, so there was an opportunity then to put out, uh, you know, what is it called? The proof is in the pudding. So when you put out a a workshop and it gets sold out, when you um, submit something and there's like an overwhelmingly positive response to the work, uh, then there was a justification for why I should be spending most of my time. And even though I did not have the title, I ended up doing the work for, for a number of years. Samia had gotten into public health to confront the racism and inequities she was seeing every day. But in 2015, not that long ago, even speaking the word racism or writing the word oppression were seen as too much, too provocative, too uncomfortable, too emotional for public health. She kept at it. She recognized the huge gap in opportunity that existed to support her colleagues to bring equity into how they planned and delivered public health programs from the beginning. She had champions inside and outside of PHO who helped her make equity and racial equity that central part of her role that it is today. By 2020, the world had changed. Sammy explained how the so-called racial awakening happening globally has increased the willingness of folks in public health to talk about and acknowledge the differential experiences of Black people in Canada and the resources and power disproportionately held by white people. Despite these shifting conversations, we also spoke about the pain and frustration of continued inaction. Uh, so some of the work that I've uh, also taken on was around uh, some of the racial health equity and particularly one of the you know, manuscripts that I'm really excited about that is going to be coming up um, in a month or so is around um, action-based um, response to anti-Black racism because we know um, after the, if we can call it, so, so-called racial awakening that has happened globally, there has been a lot of um, interest, but also a lot of commitments and statements around uh, uh, and a, a willingness to perhaps understand the differential experiences of Black people, even within racialized people. So the work that we've been focused on particularly is understanding or sifting through the statements and comments and commitments that did not result in in action to the ones that actually resulted in investment, in program shifts, in policy changes. And hopefully those will have a greater um, impact on the lives and the well-being of Black folks in this Mm -hmm. country and, and across across the world. Samia, I'm curious, do you ever find it frustrating that this racial awakening or however you want to frame it has only been happening since basically 2020? I just know for me, it's just so wild to me that, as you mentioned, these issues are so longstanding. You know, we've presented the data, we've we try to teach people, bring them along, but it's only since 2020 that it seems like people are willing to have these conversations, especially in public health. Do you ever find that 
frustrating? Absolutely. Very frustrating. And actually, Bernice, to be honest with you, for um, I had a seven months of say no after um, the murder of George Floyd uh, for... Um, you know, so I do a, a lot of also public speaking outside of my PHO role uh, and a lot of community work and volunteer work in community and outside community. And, and you know, sometimes I do some academic work and work with some universities as well. So, um, so I had seven months of saying no because every single person, including folks that I worked mm. with, were interested in this topic and it was draining and it was uh, painful. And it was, as you said, we've been ringing these alarm bells for you know, decades. And uh, the fact that it took a the murder of a an unarmed black man in the most brutal way for it to be, you know, televised and for... Middle of the street. People, mm-hmm. Middle of the street uh, with people watching and so many people, uh, are, uh, you know, are uh, surrounding that murder and no one doing anything to stop it. It took that long. You know, it's the continuous conversation we have around dehumanizing uh, black lives that um, you know, our pain does not matter, our anger does not matter, and it takes like the most severe forms of um, hurt and and disruption uh, for um, an ounce of act. Because again, the response has been swift, but it definitely came in the forms of uh, accolades and, and and announcements and and tears and and anger right. that is full of guilt and shame, but did not really necessarily translate into systemic changes. We're still dealing with the same things and the same forces that killed George Floyd, killed uh, Ahmed Aubrey like two weeks mm-hmm. later. And we have our own Canadian-based uh, also um, murders. And, you know, that same system kills Black people. So it hasn't really changed. So we are Absolutely. stuck in this perpetual cycle of telling the historical realities, telling our current stories, you know, retelling the stories again and again and again and again. And always, almost always, um, it's um, not necessarily a new audience, but an audience that pretends that this is the first time that they hear this. And there's the awe and the shock of, of, of the story all the time. I am very, very, very over this idea of like, oh, here's a percentage of black people who are going through this. Here's the number of people that we know have blood pressure and diabetes because they've been you know so stressed out because of systemic racism day in and day out and the violence that they face every day so like let's let's move beyond that and like let's talk about how are we going to do better what are we going to do differently as a public health professional or as a public health profession as a field how are we going to do work differently um because if we're not talking about action then i'm sorry we're not talking (laughs) yeah yeah and so from where you sit What do you think are the most common barriers that the public health workforce and organizations experience when it comes to, you know, transforming their usual ways of thinking and doing? So not only recognizing the problem, but actually taking action. What do you think are the most common barriers? I think a lot of the time people are stuck in this um, powerlessness paradigm, thinking that someone else needs to change the policy, someone else that needs to shift the system, and they don't recognize their own power uh, of acting from where they are and taking stock of what do I have influence over, what do I have uh, power over. If you are designing a program you for sure have the opportunity to put forward an equitable program that considers the lived experiences of the populations you serve. 
that mandate does not need to come from the ministry, nor your um, manager, nor your supervisor. That is something that you, as someone who's putting this work forward, can put that. And if you are at a decision-making or a policy level, again, you are able to approve these programs and you're able to review a program and say, hey, I've noticed that this is missing. Would you consider reviewing or, you know, including this work? So I think if there is a, a responsibility to do this work across all levels of public health, then we're able to move forward. However, if there is this, people are stuck in their roles and are not able to imagine uh, mm. the possibility of doing the work without uh, having necessarily the title to do the work. And there has been some shifts that has come, you know, over the past um few years and unfortunately it took uh the murder of a black man on te- being televised for even you know these shifts to happen to uh, declare um anti-black racism as, as a public health crisis to um be intentional about how uh, the vaccine rollout um would take place in in black communities and other racialized communities to think about um mosques and churches and grocery stores as places for public health program delivery uh as opposed to just being stuck in health units or very few sites you know, I think if anything, this pandemic had shown us that different is possible mm-hmm. and different is doable and different is better. Uh, so we could definitely do better, uh, you know, and, and deliver equitable programs across the board, not only when we have a pandemic and we, we, we need people to get vaccinated. Sammy is telling me how important it is that everyone in public health sees health equity and racial health equity as part of their responsibility. And she goes on to tell me about how harmful it is when public health organizations do the opposite and see equity as a job of just one person or team. Unfortunately, we know that uh, for many, many organizations across, uh, not only in the public health field, but across the board, they reverted to hiring, um, you know, equity, inclusion, you know, diversity uh, experts as a single person in a whole, you know, with thousands of employees as the person who's going to change the system somehow, change the organization. And then what happens is that person is set up for failure because all and everything is referred back to them. And as if, and everybody else washes their hands and thinks that this is the responsibility of that often, you know, black, often racialized um, person's responsibility, often indigenous person's responsibility. It's like inviting someone to your house for dinner Mm -hmm. and, you know, asking them to, as soon as they walk in to start cleaning up and cook and clean and, you know, take out the garbage and do all of the work and you're just what <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of host are you? Beyond all these existing challenges, the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated inequities and brought additional challenges to advancing equity. Samia mentions the role that activists outside and inside public health played in ringing the alarm to call attention to inequities in the early days of the pandemic. Samia also reminds us how important community activists are to health and racial justice and how important it is for us to recognize this. It took, you know, the young people in Toronto that had the tent tents across um, the police, um, you know, headquarters for mm-hmm. 15 days in the rain and in the cold um, for us to have the confronting anti-black racism unit in the city of Toronto. Right. For the mayor to have. So, so to remind people also these things don't happen 
Uh, they happen because people have fought for them. And even though there is a continuous dismissal of that work, for those of us who are on the inside, I would not be sitting and having this conversation if it was not for the people who broke down doors and forced the system leaders to acknowledge the problem. So we're literally standing in the, on the shoulders of not the people who are activists from the past, but current to today's activists. Given how difficult it is to challenge inequities, Samia talked about the importance of having others walk alongside you in this work. She also tells me about the need to remind people they have the power to make a difference. So I think I found few other people who were um, perhaps not... um, my seniors, but again, mm-hmm. colleagues, particularly Black people and also Black women in within public health uh, who I have tapped on their shoulders and cried with sometimes yeah. <laughs> and laughed with at other times to uh, understand, yes, you know, that, that this is a system. We are in the belly of the beast in a lot of the time and it is a system that we are kind of raging against. However, um, also provide the perspective of what are the levers to pull, what are the strategic moves that we need to make. So uh, what is an, a good time to put through a, a policy brief or, or to see the new idea? Is there a new um, uh, program that we can collaborate with each other across different organizations in the field? Um, and so uh, relying on, on peers and, and, and friends inside and outside the Ontario system was really helpful. And you had mentioned that you want people to imagine the possibilities, right? How do you help people imagine the possibilities through the work that you're doing to not only say this is a problem, but this is a problem and I have a responsibility to act? Yes, it's that challenge and sharing with people the the very, like stories are very small health units or health promoters or policy advisors who have come up with an innovative way to solve a problem and, you know, how what that success might look like and all of the things that we always thought that were not possible, we know that they are now. So uh, it's reminding folks of your power and to use your power to do better um, because the biggest problem that I've faced actually is people giving away their power and and always deferring to others to do the work as opposed to themselves. I often mentor a lot of young people in that are starting their careers in public health, and I, I I let them know depending on where you are in your career, you might have a very different consequences in what you say and the fights that you have to. To, to fight. So make sure you have your armor on, make sure you have your, your tools on before you go into a, a battle, like understand, assess, assess what you're go walking into. And sometimes you might have to sit few things out because it, you might not be ready. But also challenging myself and others, I think I've learned is when are we actually having rational um, fears and when are we having irrational fears? When are we worried about saying the truth, even though the consequences will not be as severe as we think? So, um, and this is often my conversation with my white colleagues because a lot of the times people believe falsely that they're not able to speak up because there is a fear of repercussion and uh, the repercussion, you know, your worst fear might not be actually what you think it is. For example, one of the things that 
folks that think they are allies sometimes do is that they might write to you directly as opposed to to the group to say, you know, thank you for saying that or I agree with you or I support you. And my feedback is always wonderful. Can you reply all to, with the, to that uh, to that email oh, and, say that. <laughs> and say it? <laughs> because and then do they usually or they do, they do, okay. because I, I do tell, I do, I do explain why, and I tell them, you know, you're putting the burden on me, and and yes, you're giving me your support, and that's helpful, but your support will be more helpful when it's viewed by others, and and that that this is not a Samia issue, but it is a legitimate a concern across the board, and you as a white colleague, um, you have to be able to wield your own power. And sometimes if someone, oh, I was worried, about, I, we would, I would walk through them, the model. What is the risk? What is your fear? Can we, can we, you know, you and I are on the same position. Exactly. So what do you think? If you're willing to come and congratulate me in practice, then feel free to congratulate me in public. I love that. In addition to having people identify what their fears are and which ones are rational and irrational, what other words of advice do you have for people who are looking to challenge the usual ways of doing things or talking about things in the spaces in which they find themselves, in public health and, and beyond? It's a muscle. You, you need to build it and it gets easier with time and you are able to pick up on things quickly. Um, I've been blessed with being able to address these situations without making people um, fear me or feel that they're being attacked. So... Um, I appreciate and love every single person's approach. So find what is your, what's your skill. I did um, a 360 survey very long time ago. And the the trait that people appreciated most about me was that I was kind and I was warm mm. and I was approachable. And even though initially I was really upset at these things because oh, I... <laughs> What were you hoping for? Fierce, strong. (laughs) (laughs) So so I learned to wield my kindness and my warmth and my approachability to serve the cause and have these very challenging conversations with a lot of people who are um, ashamed about their position, uh, fearful about taking actions, but... Uh, holding space to have a welcoming conversation and push them into action at the end of it. Like, you know, I'm not having these conversations to coddle people. I'm not having these conversations to make people feel better or less guilty. I am having the conversations because at the ultimately I want them to act and do better and, and do differently because whether they have the power today or tomorrow, they will be in place of power especially if it's a white colleague. And I often have these conversations and I, and I tell them, you might not hold a lot of power today, but you will in the future. And I want you to be ready when you are in that position. And how have you seen yourself be changed through this work? Definitely my ability to really affirm my own identity and who I am uh, and what path am I going to be working on this in this journey called life. I always also for a very long time divided my community work from my professional work, but I've decided that it is actually not only um, okay, but it's actually necessary and beneficial for me to show up uh, wearing all my different hijabs, whether it's the black one or the Muslim one or the women one or, you know, um, 
being from you know a highly racialized and a highly under-resourced community in the city of Toronto, all of those parts of me uh, are showing up when I sit across from someone at the table or when I am training or when I'm reviewing a piece of legislation or policy or when I am providing feedback and advice. Samia talked about a time she saw the impact of her work to shift public health's understanding of health inequities. Samia, as part of a team, had a chance to review the Ontario Public Health Standards Health Equity Guideline before it was released. And they saw a full circle moment in terms of folks better understanding how justice was deeply tied to health equity. Samia made sure that the guideline defined health inequities as not just unfair, but also unjust, and explains why this was important. So I think if you recall, that was my introduction to doing this work and justice was often thrown around as a, as a problematic word. And when I had the opportunity to review uh, with along many other colleagues, uh, the health equity um, guidelines and the standard, um, and I looked up the definition of uh, health equity, it, it did not include justice or unjust uh, work. And um, so, and I mean, I provided a lot of other uh, feedback, but that was the most significant for me because I was intentional around including that word and there was no pushback you know because we've also done the work by that time to, mm-hmm. to educate people around that we cannot do health equity work without justice work we cannot afford to use passive language so when we say things like oh it's just luck or unfair or you know it allows us to escape from the reality and the responsibility of doing anything different and and even this is why we're using words like structural racism because it's a structure, right? And therefore, mm-hmm. we have also the ability to, um, you know, you can dismantle a structure, you can shift a structure, you can change a structure. So as opposed to social, social determinants of health, um, you know, they are social so we can, you know, Mm-hmm. We think it's we, we take them for granted. So justice, particularly for me, is is a very very key component because of the action that can come um, to produce justice in an unjust um, situation. And no one tells you this is life. Life is unjust. Live with it. To wrap things up, Samia talked about her hopes for the future of public health. So you've spoken about what you've seen in your work in public health over the last uh, seven years or so. What do you hope that public health will look like, sound like, and feel like in the next seven years? I really hope that we're not having the conversations of the one-on-ones of anti-racism work. We're not having equity and defining equity and equality and the difference. We're not talking about racial justice as an as an other or as something else that is outside of our field. And that we are not talking about advocacy as something that is not the responsibility of public health professionals. Um, that we are in a in a place where we are able to center those who've been marginalized and others for too long, and able to serve them in a way that they deserve to be served, in an equitable, fair, just way. This work of doing racial justice is not a new work. It just has taken very, very different forms. And that is the, I guess, the design of white supremacy is that, and racism is that it keeps on reappearing in a more polished, um, you know, Mm. dressed up in different clothes and in a new design every few, every decade. It comes up in a very different way, but it's still the same ugly 
hateful, harmful system. And we just have to continuously unmask it. So I, I think it's, it's this unmasking is, you know, our generation's responsibility and not to revert back to be, I guess, satisfied with the words that do not result in action. What a privilege that was to speak to the kind, funny, tenacious Samia, who reminds each and every one of us in public health and beyond that we are not powerless, that racial and health justice requires that we all recognize our power and influence to make change and disrupt the status quo wherever we find ourselves. Now you'll hear from Heather Loco, who has worked in local public health and championed health equity for 25 years. Heather works at the Middlesex London Health Unit, MLHU, a local public health unit in Southern Ontario. She started as a nursing student and now she is a health unit's chief nursing officer, part of the senior leadership team and oversees health equity for the whole health unit. Heather is also the director for the Healthy Start Division for MLHU, supporting parents and families from before pregnancy until children start school. Health equity has always been important to Heather. My life partner is from West Africa, and we have three grown boys, men, who um, are biracial. And so seeing the world through their lens and hearing their experiences has really provided me with the opportunity to understand a little bit better uh, what some of the realities are. I live in a white skin and I experience white privilege. And uh, so I will never fully understand it. But because of my life experiences, I think I've had a chance to have a glimpse of what some of the realities are. And we often, even at home, talk about what are the things that we need to do? How do we need to change things? Where do we need to move forward? Uh, how do we change people's hearts and minds? How do we change our systems? Mm. So it's a conversation that has been a big part of my life. I haven't mentioned it yet, but I used to work with Heather. I know her to be such a kind leader. I wanted to know more about how she does it and why being kind and persistent can serve to disrupt the status quo. We had a chance to work together, which was such an amazing experience. One of the things that I most admire is your kind approach to leadership. And you can be so busy doing a million different things, but you're always consistently kind as you lead. And um, Sammy and I were joking in our conversation about how she wanted her colleagues to describe her as fierce and strong and all these things. But what they most commonly said was that she was kind and approachable. And I've been reflecting a bit on that. And I imagine that especially for tough topics like health equity, being kind and being approachable could be probably so important in terms of encouraging people to uh, move these issues forward. Do you agree that that's probably an integral part of um, how you approach your leadership and what has um, enabled you to get so much buy-in from people? First of all, thank you so much for your kind words. I really all appreciate true. it. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I do think that kindness is really important. As a nurse, I believe very much in the importance of relationship building. And I believe that building relationships is critical for anything we want to accomplish in life uh, and in work. And one of the ways that we can really genuinely build relationship is to be kind and to uh, remember that each person is a human being of inestimable value. One of the things about um, health equity work and kindness, I think, is that finding that balance between speaking truth 
and speaking truth kindly and speaking it in a way that um, helps people to move to action. And so I think there is a way of actually finding a close to a good balance of of speaking that truth and being disruptive and being kind, recognizing that everyone's at a different place. And so we need to meet people where they're at and move them in steps forward from wherever they are, mm. whether that's at an individual level or an organizational level. So how do you balance both? Because in the meantime, people are being shot in the streets. They're dying in disproportionate numbers from COVID-19. They're not having enough food to eat. So how do you balance, I need to meet people where they at and bring them along, but also this sense of urgency that we have a responsibility to act now? How do you do that within the context of your leadership? To be really honest, I think it's a really, really important point that we need to be thinking about. There's absolutely an urgency to this work. One of the things that comes to mind for me is, as a leader, is that it's important for me to continually bring forward these issues to find opportunities over and over and over again, to talk about the concepts, the ideas, to think about ways to say them in different ways, in different contexts, to help people recognize how this actually is relevant to absolutely everything that we do. Every single decision we make can be considered with a health equity lens. Um, We can be thinking about racism in our organization, in our system, in our society, and, and how we can take steps. I think there's a bit of an art to it in terms of trying to sense that balance. We definitely have to be able to speak what needs to be spoken. We need to talk directly about the issues of racism and oppression. We have to talk about it in ourselves as individuals, our biases. We have to talk about it in our systems and our organizations. We have to talk about it. I think one of the ways that we can help to mitigate that challenge with that balance is to come with ideas for action Hmm. and not to just talk about the problems. And Samia talked about that as well. Because again, as Samia said, people can feel powerless. They are not powerless but they can feel powerless. They can be immobilized by their emotion, uh, by their guilt, by what whatever it is that mm-hmm. they're experiencing. And so we need to help them step over that and move to action. I have also seen, though, where people have been so overwhelmed with the pushing that they truly become immobilized. And I know, you know, this series is is about that, is being the disruptors and bringing forward that discomfort. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. If if we're not intentional about creating some discomfort, it, things won't change. It will stay status quo. And that's not okay. It's not acceptable. So we, we do have to create that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned seeing people become immobilized through too much pushing. Is there a story that comes to mind that, that illustrates that? So I can think of a workshop that I went to with um, some colleagues. And it was focused on anti-oppression anti-racism. And it was uh, a very well done workshop. Uh, It brought forward issues, you know, very frankly. It did not speak specifically about action to move forward, but it really highlighted the issues in a very profound way. One of the individuals who was along with me had not really been exposed to some of these realities before. And so it was very overwhelming for this individual. And there was a lot of emotion that um, I would, from my perspective, took a number of months to kind of navigate through. And, and as, as a white person in the system with privilege, we must navigate through. Mm-hmm. My perspective is that we don't have the option to just decide it's too hard to think about, it's too hard to feel mm-hmm. um, that guilt. You, we, we have an obligation 
to work through that and get to a place where we are going to be constructive in the system right. and that we're going to actually be part of making the positive change. Um, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time checking in with that person and continuing the debriefing process for, for you know, for many months after um, talking about, yes, this is the reality and it's, and it's horrible and it's, and it's wrong. And then trying to work through some of the emotions that this individual was feeling as a white person and trying to channel some of those emotions into, so what, what can we do about this? It doesn't mean that we are horrible people. It means that we have a lot of learning to do and we have a lot of unlearning to do. Mm-hmm. And we can be good people. It doesn't mean we're a horrible person. We can be good people and, and have this unlearning to do and this learning to do. What we have to make sure we do is we do the unlearning and we do that new learning and we then move to action. In this work, you're bound to encounter different types of resistance for a number of reasons. Um, Sometimes people are just very comfortable seeing and doing things as they've always seen and done them. For you, how do you navigate that resistance in terms of your leadership role? I think there are times when we just need to continue to push. So Mm -hmm. I think there there absolutely are times when we need to do that. I think uh, other times when there's resistance, um, it's about providing more information it often is about working through the emotions related to it uh, and giving space for for some of that debriefing and reflection. I think part of addressing resistance is helping to inspire the vision in others of where we're trying to go and help them to see that. Tying into people's values um, and uh, so trying to tap into and leverage the, the strengths and values that are there. I think resistance sometimes can be also addressed by turning the table Hmm. Um, asking the question, if this was something that you were experiencing, uh, would it be okay if this was, uh, and, and so that can, I think, generate uh, a reframing of the issue. There's two strategies that I often use kind of unconsciously. Someone pointed them out to me not too long ago. One of them is asking questions of curiosity. So what does it really mean that this is how we do things? Or what would it really be like if we did something in this way? Or what, um, what is it about this that's really difficult? Another one is, it's a similar thing, but it's using the phrase, tell me more. Heather also shared some advice she has for people in senior leadership positions. As leaders, there has to be an intentionality about work that needs to happen, and there have to be dedicated resources to move work forward. And so I think, you know, those are really key pieces that all decision makers need to keep in mind. We can have all these great, wonderful visions, but if we don't have intentionality with measurable steps and resources dedicated to them, it's going to be really hard to move forward. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about intentionality and what that means for you in the context of this work? Uh, Intentionality for me means listening. For one thing, it means listening. Listening to those who have lived experience, listening to those within the system who experience racism and oppression, who have amazing ideas for the things that need to change in the system, Mm -hmm. Uh, and listening with humility. The second thing is, and it's tied into that listening, is to take the responsibility for educating myself and learning and growing and challenging myself to think in different ways, to really look at myself and my own implicit bias 
intentionality also has to do with figuring out my own emotions as it relates to it, understanding my own white privilege and thinking about what that means and what about those things do I need to understand and what do I need to change about those things. I guess another part for me personally around intentionality is is keeping that vision mm-hmm. of where we want to go and not losing sight of that vision because there are times when it can be discouraging and feel like things are taking a long time and step forward you know, two steps forward, a step back. So keeping that vision in mind. As a white person, I'm going to speak about this as a white person trying to make some positive change in this area of work. Mm -hmm. I think another important uh, thing for us to think about as leaders is that we need to, in addition to listening, we also need to look for where we can step back and let those who have expertise either through lived experience or uh, and expertise in public health um, to direct the work to tell us what needs to happen, to provide that direction. And then as leaders, we need to amplify their voices. We need to support their voices. We need to reiterate what what is being said by people who are experiencing racism and oppression. Mm -hmm. And for you, you've been at the health unit for a very long time. Would you say you've seen things, you know, move forward? They can take a very long time, but have you seen them move forward? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I would say we're in a very different place than we were when I started here 25 years ago mm-hmm. in terms of what we talk about, how we talk about it, the resources we put into education, mandatory education around Indigenous cultural safety training, for instance, mm-hmm. the resources we dedicate both in terms of program resources, in terms of people resources. We have policies that are far different than we had 25 years ago. We have resources from the ministry. And so we have language to talk about this that we didn't have before. I would say very much we're a different place than we were before collectively. And we still have steps to take and we still have room to grow and we still have action that we have to move forward because we're not there yet. We're definitely not there yet. Thank you so much to Sammy and Heather, who are each working within the public health system to transform our teams, programs, agencies, and systems. Both Sammy and Heather reminded us that we can't turn away from the responsibility of this work, that health equity work requires kindness, persistence, and intentionality. And we must use our power to contribute to a more equitable and just public health system. Check out the episode description and our website nccdh.ca for more resources about health equity. Thanks for listening to Mind the Disruption, a podcast by the National Collaborating Center for Determinants of Health. Visit our website, nccdh.ca, to learn more about the podcast and our work. This episode has been produced by Carolina Jimenez, Bernice Yanfel, and me, Rebecca Schiff, with technical production and original music by Chris Perry. Special thanks to Tia Mata for her help editing this episode and Mandy Walker for her help with guest interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and subscribe. We have more stories on the way of people challenging the status quo to build a healthier, more just world. Thank you.